Welcome to the Buck and Bernie Show. I'm Buck. I'm Bernie, and uh, yes, it's spring, baby. It's spring. Yes, indeed. Mm-hmm. Things are starting to pop, you know, and we're hopefully on our way out of the uh, doldrums of winter, and now we're preparing for springtime, which brings in gardening. Yep, indeed, and uh, and this wonderful organization that we have in town. Right. The Youth Garden Project, which has been in town for a while, so let's talk about that. Let's. Uh, yeah, we have a, let's we have our two two guests today. We're gonna just uh, take us on a journey. So please introduce yourself, ladies. Yeah, um, my name is Jesse. I'm the outreach and development coordinator at the Youth Garden, and I'm Sarah. I'm the produce manager at the Youth Garden. Let's talk about the history of the Youth Garden first. Yeah, absolutely. So we were founded in 1996, so um, in our 27th year of operation. Oh, nice. Um, and have grown quite a bit since our founding. In our first year, um, it was in our founder, Sarah Heffron's backyard. And we served, I believe, around 12 youth in that first year. And now we serve over 1,000 kids pre-K through 12th grade every year in the garden. So um, have expanded quite a bit pre-K all the way through 12th grade. Um through field trips, uh, garden classrooms, summer camps, spring break camp, after school clubs, all different things to get kids outside and involved um, in garden-based education. Okay, and let's uh, let's speak of the location, first of all. Where, where are you located? Yeah, so we're at 530 South 400 East um, on high school property. So we're right next to Grand County High School um, on 1.5 acres of growing space. And so you involve the students, of course, and... Uh, is that actually a credited? Uh, Sometimes, uh, yeah. So um, for our high school, we have in the past offered classes that count as either electives or science-based credits. Um, so students can come over every day for those courses. Um, this year, we've shifted a little bit more towards uh, workshops. So for example, the food science class will come out and do um, a salad dressing workshop where they learn how to make their own salad dressing and uh, kind of combine ingredients to create something of their own. Um, and we do uh, jamming and canning as a workshop where they learn how to preserve uh, some of the fruit that we have in our orchard every year. So kind of more workshop based at this point where teachers have the opportunity to bring their classes over um, and utilize the space either with us teaching the courses and coming up with workshops or just to have a change of pace in the classroom and come out and use the garden as an outdoor learning space where kids can just get outside and um, yeah, maybe focus in a different way. You have a really nice kitchen on property. Yeah. Yeah, we did we did a dinner. We did a dinner uh, that was a couple of years ago and oh, maybe 3 years ago. My goodness, it goes really fast. But it's it's a really neat kitchen. So you are teaching in that kitchen as well, right? This is where you do all the canning and all the dressing and all those things with uh, with the students. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. That's so cool. we have a commercial kitchen, um, and we do cooking workshops often with middle school, after school, in partnership with Beacon. Um, so are able to use it for that space. And then, um, like you mentioned, the garden dinners mm-hmm. every season, uh, bringing in guest chefs for those as well. So um, we also occasionally rent out to other nonprofits, um, and other businesses are able to use our kitchen on occasion, um, depending on space. And um, yeah, so it's really a community space that we work with, with both kids and adults. And also a pizza oven now. Yes. <laughs> Whoa. Yes. Yeah. Use a pizza oven? Oh, yes. Uh, All right, we need to do another dinner, another dinner and use a pizza oven. Yeah. <laughs> it doesn't mean that you have to cook pizza. You know, you can no, cook no, something no, no. else with it. That's, that's what's great. Cool yeah. All kinds yeah. of baked things and pizza. <laughs> it's very oven, cool. Yeah, that's been around for a couple of years or so. And, yeah. Yeah. So. yeah. so 2019, that was built. Um, it's all natural construction, um, cob oven. So we've had some pizza nights that Sarah has spearheaded the cooking process for with all um, produce from the garden to top those pizzas. So hoping to incorporate it a bit more this year and get some more pizzas out um, to kids and adults. In so the how many full-time uh, employees do you have at the Youth Garden? We have five full-time staff, okay. um, yes, so year-round, and then uh, we have instructors that come in seasonally. Um, we'll have two to three instructors this year that are either um, education-focused or more farm-focused um, that help with our uh, garden classroom, field trips, and summer camp, and um, all of the youth programming as it kind of kicks off in the springtime. 
And do you take on volunteers to uh, help out? Mm. Yes, absolutely. We are always looking for volunteers. So if anyone out there wants to volunteer with YGP, um, I am the person to contact, uh, Jesse. So um, yeah, we love having volunteers of all ages come out to the garden. Um, and whether it's weekly, once a month, um, once a year, any kind of involvement, we're, we're happy to accommodate and just have some people come out and help out. Right. And you guys have a great website now. And yep. uh, so anyone that wants to mm-hmm. learn and uh, or volunteer or whatever, just just go to the Youth Garden website, which is, what's the uh, website? Youthgardenproject.org. Youthgardenproject.org, and you can uh, see what's going on. Yeah, I was on it this morning, and uh, it's been a little while since I was, uh, you know, surfing that that website, and it's really, really neat. There is tons of information, and also there's uh, really good information about the uh, ancestral uh, part of the land when it comes to the grant uh, with all of the Indian reservations or locals who were here before. And I think that's really remarkable that you have continued to nurture that that culture. Because, I mean, when you look at it, we hear now that there was many, many people before we arrived here in Moab. So... It's really nice to uh, to have this uh, this element, and I think this is a really important element also to uh, to teach the the children, the students that uh, uh, there is so much history and culture behind it. So that's really cool. Yeah, you guys do a great job. Right, you have the old. Uh, I guess it's an old pioneer house that you work out of. Uh-huh. And, and yeah. Do you know the history of that? So the Schaefer home um, is the oldest still standing adobe home structure um, in Moab. So it was uh, built in the 1800s and Mm -hmm. um, has gone through a lot of different uh, families living there and was renovated in late 90s, early 2000s to become our space now. So we're really lucky to to be in that space, um, and it was recently replastered um, last fall, so looking spiffy <laughs> right now. Um, and yeah, we actually had the family that was living in the home for a long time had a family reunion last summer um, oh, to kind of crazy. revisit cool. and see that history and um, brought some photos of different eras of the Schaefer home. So it was really cool to see um, where there was like an outdoor cellar and uh, before the kitchen was there and all, all kinds of different things. So. I'm sure there was an outdoor cellar. So I'm yeah. sure they I'm sure they one. probably farmed or mm-hmm. uh, gardened, farmed and gardened that property. Yeah, before. yeah. And the yeah. Uh, what we call the corn crib, which is over by where our rabbits are in the garden, is an original structure as well. So that's been been there uh, for a very long time. I'm not sure exactly how many years, but um, yeah, it's cool to see some of that history in the space. So gardening, gardening is a very um, uh, tricky. Uh, part of life here in Moab because um, it gets really, really cold in the winter. It gets really, really hot in the summer. So you need to really have a good understanding of the climate, microclimates that you also have in the region to be very uh, successful with your garden. So what do you recommend, uh, let's say, if when you start a garden? So what I mean by that is more likely you'll start to work on it and sitting and 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 work from seeds when in what February March? Tell us about it. Yeah, so um, we actually start our very first seedings um, all the way back in um, February, first week of February. We start seeding onions and um, we start our lettuces inside. Um, since it does get so hot here, um, some of those crops um, you have to start earlier so you can get them out earlier um, and let them mature before the heat hits. Um, we also, uh, start all of our crops that take a long time, um, all the way back in February as well. Um, so we're doing peppers and tomatoes, um, in late February, um, and getting all those ready to go, to go out in the springtime. But yeah, we start those all in our greenhouse. Right. You have a geodesic Mm. greenhouse. Yes. Uh, we do have one. Um, we, that. Uh, we don't really start our seeds in that one. We have just kind of a more traditional greenhouse um, that we start all of our seeds for the plant sale in. Mm-hmm. Um, but we do that, uh, the grow dome, as we call it, um, ends up being a, a secondary structure to move those seedlings into. Um, but we keep all of our grow lights in the regular greenhouse. Okay, so uh, one would probably be a greenhouse, one is a hot house. Is that? Is uh, that we have a terminology. Green- <laughs> maybe you could explain to me. 
Mm-hmm. Is there a difference between a greenhouse and a hothouse? Yeah, so we have um, we have three different um, season extension structures. We have a hoop house, um, which I think sometimes are called hot houses. Um, so we have the the hoop house, which um, we just grow right into the ground, mm-hmm. um, and it's it's got greenhouse plastic over that. Um, yeah. So we've actually got things in there right now. Um, we've got kales and um, some broccoli and. Um, We've got bok choy in there right now um, growing. And um, then we've got a, a greenhouse, which is where we do all of the seeds starting. Um, so that's set up with lights um, and heaters. Um, so we do keep that warmed in the spring and um, late winter. Um, and that's how we get everything sprouted. Um, and then our grow dome um, that structure, we like I said, we don't really start seeds in there. Um, we do have some raised beds, um, and we use that more as season extension. Um, like we just had um, tomatoes that that just died off recently that we had going from since last summer. Um, so we wow. use that to prolong really? the season. That's were they cool. actually producing? Yeah, they were producing oh, wow. a ton. Yeah, all the way until. <clears throat> December, um, I think we all went away on vacation and the door blew open. <laughs> and that's what finally uh-huh. took them out. But uh-huh. um, last year, we had tomatoes go all the way into into February. And we ended up just pulling them out just because we were ready for something new. Wow. Yeah. So if anyone hear that, it's almost like California because I live in uh, in uh, Encinitas, so, which is north of San Diego. It's the same thing. Everybody doesn't believe that you have tomatoes growing all the way to February. And so, yeah, you know, it's and they go, well, yeah, but the season just like it's completely gone. And it's like, yeah, but if you know how to n- nurture, to take care of and to control mm-hmm. the uh, the temperatures and have the right nutrient, then mm-hmm. then it continues to grow. Yeah, which absolutely. is really neat. Now, how do you prepare? So let's say let's say that I I am now in March, which is last month. How do you prepare your soil? Because I mean, yeah, there's there's you need to prepare it. Do you have to do you have to rotate planting crops and how do you do it? Yeah, so we do all, all sorts of different things to prepare. Um, we do a lot of our preparations actually at the end of the season um, to get ready for spring. So we um, pull all the plants out. Um, we actually usually cut the plants at the base so we can leave the, the root structures in place. Um, and then we will mulch the beds really heavily. Um, and that helps protect the soil um, and the microbes in the soil um, from erosion and drying out. Um, so that way in the spring, um, we can pull off all that bedding and have really nice, rich soil. Um, so in the spring, we're, we're starting. It, it's hard to not pull it off right away and get planting, but you really want to keep that soil protected um, as long as you can up until, you know, the day before you're planting, keeping it tucked in. Oh, wow. This is, yeah. this is everybody should pay attention to this because this is really the way that you will be able to get some great garden mm-hmm. and some great crops going. Yeah. Uh, that's cool. And then when it comes to, so you getting it ready, do you add any type of fertilizer to, or, or any, I don't know, anything at all? Yeah. So um, in, in the fall, we add the leaves, which do break down and create a really rich soil. Um, and then in the spring, right before we plant, um, we actually make um, a lot of our own compost, Um we actually have a, a community compost pile where um, folks can drop off their compost and we'll turn it, turn it back into soil. Um, so we'll do um, a dressing on all of our beds. Um, we'll get a couple wheelbarrows worth of compost on before we plant. Um, and then um, we have, you know, we've we've done a really great job taking care of the soil there for many, many years. So we don't really need to add a lot of fertilizer. Mm-hmm. Um so we will plant and then, um, you know, uh, tomatoes and peppers, after a couple months of them being in the ground there, we'll add a little bit of extra fertilizer. Um, but yeah, we really, um, if you take really good care of your soil um, and uh, cover it up, put it to bed, add lots of organic materials to it, um, you really don't need a ton of fertilizer, which is really cool. So let's talk about that a little bit. Composting, yes. which is very important. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. And you know, the home gardener is very easy to do. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. Talk about that a little bit, how how the home gardener can actually in, involve composting. And the do there. and do not when you <laughs> compost. Yeah. So, um, yeah, there's definitely some different methods. We're actually um, we're going to be having a compost workshop mm-hmm. coming up pretty soon. Jesse and I are working on the dates for that. But um so uh, for a home composter, um, if you have the space, um, 
you can just kind of collect your veggie scraps. Um, you want to um, get those collected, but also have um, a, a brown material. So brown materials could be um, leaves or uh, straw, wood chips, even those like paper city market bags. Mm -hmm. You can tear those up. Um, and you're looking to um, create a, a two to one ratio of browns um, to, uh, they call them greens. So greens would be all of your kitchen scraps. Mm -hmm. um, greens would be grass clippings, like fresh glass, grass clippings, um, fresh uh, plant material. Um, so basically, you're just trying to keep that ratio. Um, so definitely you want to start off with having a lot of those browns available because um, if you just kind of pile up just your kitchen scraps, they're not really going to break down. So Can you want to you want to put it in the, into a, a special receptacle? Uh, yes, as it to be covered because in the winter time it's going to get mm -hmm. really really cold. Yeah. So uh, what do you recommend? Um, so yeah, uh, we do cover them. Um, what we actually do at the youth garden is we have. Um, we have three uh, cages where we rotate through um, and then followed by two large insulated and covered bays. Um, so things will move through those cages pretty quickly. It's more just to keep it moving and flipping. Um, and then once they get into those bays, um, that's when it gets covered. Um, they're insulated with um, uh, straw bales on the sides. Mm -hmm. um, and we found that that works really well oh, yeah. to keep them warm and also to retain all that moisture. Moisture, yep. Because um, that's the biggest thing here is um, if you don't have enough moisture, you're not going to get compost. Um, mm -hmm. So we actually have to water sometimes twice a week in the summer. Um, water our compost because mm -hmm. um, it won't it won't keep moving if you don't keep it you know moist and aerated. Those are like the next two big things. If you get the ratio right, and then. If you give it water and air, then you can get compost. But if you're missing any of those ingredients, um, it's not going to work out. Yeah, the other thing that everybody should pay attention is when you are, let's say, putting all of your materials such as, you know, your fruit, vegetables and scraps, just make sure there is no plastic going to it. Because this is one of the biggest problem, I think, is that we started a, uh, that people don't really pay attention, even, even restaurants. We started, when I was in San Diego, a compost uh, program as well mm. but we had to really train all our staff to make sure there was no plastic it would be only uh only the the right material going into into that bin because otherwise you would get in you get in trouble because it's just not healthy and then you're using that and you put it in soil so it contaminates and everything so mm -hmm. just pay attention to this i have a story that i want to tell you guys because i live in so i, I live in a, in a small little um town home in encinitas and I always planted and I always had my peppers and my tomatoes because, as you know, it's always nice and warm there. So one year, I decided to get some uh, chicken compost. It is really awesome. I got to tell you, those tomatoes, they look like... You mean chicken poop. Poop, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> compost, yeah, chicken poop, yeah. And, and guess what happened? The tomatoes plant went so big, so high, and so beautiful, but it was a problem. The stench was really bad. <laughs> so everybody around was like, Bernard, what did you do? But, but tell us a little bit about manure. That's what I, wanted, I want to use, not compost. It's chicken manure. So in um, France, we have had some major problem with using, for example, uh, cow manure. Mm. Because mm -hmm. the cow manure, uh, if you use it in really big uh, volume, can... Um, going to the water table and contaminate, and then mm -hmm. you cannot drink that water. So what do you recommend when it comes to manure? Because I think that manure is good, but the different, different uh, I think, white type of manure. You have the chicken, of course. You have the cow. You have the horse, horse manure. is mm -hmm. really good as well. So what are your recommendations? What is the application? Yeah, so we actually um, have used uh, uh, local horse manure for a long time at the garden, um, and it's such a great free resource here. There's lots mm -hmm. of people giving it away, um, and it does great things. Um, it does have to be aged first, um, so it has to sit. I'm not actually sure how long, but probably at least a few months. Um, you don't want to put fresh manure on. Um, It'll burn it. Yeah, burn it, yeah. too yeah. high in nitrogen, too much I believe. Nitrogen. Yeah, yeah. 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 Um, but we've actually been um, getting our soil tested really regularly now, and we found that we um, 
had way too much nitrogen in our soil for a while. Um, so we've actually um, stopped using horse manure. Um, and even though it's a great free resource, um, it's, you know, picking it up is a lot, <laughs> you know, uh, doing all the loads of it. Um, uh, so we decided to move to just using what we have on site, um, which has been even easier. So we have chickens um, and we have rabbits. Um, so we actually, when we clean their cages once a week, um, we actually add, so basically the bedding that they have is straw. So mm -hmm. it's um, a mixture of their straw and their poop. And we put that into a cage next to our compost and we use that as our browns um, that go into the compost. So it actually gets fully composted um, with all the other things before it goes onto the soil um, as like a complete completed uh, compost. Mm. But yeah, yes, we good. do use that and it's great because we have it right there. <laughs> no, this is good. That's, those, are, those are the things that you were important to understand. And uh, if you want to make sure that you have uh, really good um, uh, gardens in, and you don't really understand the mechanism of it, then it becomes very frustrating because you just go, I planted it, it should have grown, and it just died. Mm -hmm. So I think that to, uh, to, to get the, the right education and to understand uh, the soil and everything is really important. Now, mm -hmm. there's a, a few things that you guys are doing different as well. So you have the beddings. And you have directly into the ground. What are different the difference when it comes to uh, to planting? So when you are doing your bedding, is it elevated? That's elevated, right? Above. Uh, the are you talking about the raised beds? The raised bed, yes. Mm -hmm. And uh, so, so what, how do you approach those? Yeah. So. Um we, we're actually just getting new raised beds built today, which is kind of cool. <laughs> mm -hmm. So wood? wood. Uh, yep. yep. So yeah, we got um, some cedar wood, and um, we've got a group out there volunteering today building all new raised beds for our like educational garden spaces. Mm -hmm. So you mentioned browns in your compost, which consists of leaves, you said, and can be other uh, vegeta dead vegetation or... Um, can car you mentioned paper brown paper can mm -hmm. brown cardboard be composted also yeah you definitely just want to make sure you're um really shredding it up as small as you can get um but yeah i i use um those brown city market bags um or uh you know you can use cardboard if it's like unwaxed doesn't have any print on it mm -hmm. um and just making sure you're tearing it up really small but that will eventually break down um and you can use that as a great a great brown material as well so to speed up the process, you could just put water on that cardboard mm -hmm. and it will almost get all mushy and you just tear it apart. And yeah. that's a great way to do it, to yeah. do it really, really quickly. Yeah, and it, it holds so much water. Actually, what I do at home is I, I'll tear up a bunch of those bags or cardboard and and soak it and use it like a sponge and then i'll mix that into the compost and it has all that water in it so instead of watering directly on top i can mix that water right in through soaking um, those brown materials and if you had kids at the house you just get everybody involved and everybody has fun right <laughs> yeah you could shred everything and put in the, yeah that's cool that's good okay so it. you got your compost now uh -huh. how do, how do you involve it how do you apply it uh, to the garden. Well, um, so basically once the compost is ready in the bays, um, we will sift it, um, get all those larger chunks out. Sometimes there's rocks and eggshells. And um, so we sift it pretty fine. Um, and then we'll add one to two uh, full wheelbarrows of compost to each bed, um, depending on the bed length or how much that bed needs. And we just top dress it. Um, we'll go right on top. Um, oh, so you don't We uh, don't turn it, it in. Oh, yeah. now that's, cool. that's something I want to talk about. Is huh. They say, because uh, a lot of people used to rototill their gardens. Yep. But that's a no-no, right? I mean... Yeah, I mean, I think the thought is you want to preserve the ground structure as much as possible. That helps with erosion, that helps with um, the, all the soil microbes. Um, they're happiest when you leave them in place, for sure. Um, but we do have to do a little bit of bed prep um, before we plant, just to kind of loosen things up. Um, but with adding lots of fresh compost and lots of um, nice soft organic materials, the 
the beds don't get super compacted. Um, I so think you use uh, you use a fork or yeah, what? we have um, a broad fork. Um, we do also we we do have a tiller that we recently got, and we will do um, for beds that really need to be worked for things like carrots, like root crops. They mm-hmm. really want the soil. Um, to be loose. really loose, yeah. yeah, to be able to form nice nice tap roots. So um, we do, um, I think we, we till about six inches down, which is very similar to what you would do by hand. It's just yeah. much faster. So yeah. we do a little bit of tilling, um, but only on beds that we really need to. We don't till our tomato beds or um, our um, pepper beds because they're planted so far apart. You just you know, kind of till right where you need to, mm-hmm. um, dig the hole, and then you can let everything else just sit in place and be happy. Um, yeah. So you talk about tomatoes. It's very interesting to me because a lot of people put the, they think that if they put the tomatoes a little bit closer to each other, they're going to get way more tomato. But it's not the case, isn't it? You need to have a certain mm-hmm. certain space in between. What do you recommend? Because I know that most likely everyone in, in this county is going to plant some tomatoes. Mm-hmm. Yep. So what is the, what's the recommendations? So we do two feet. Two in, feet. In between each um, uh, tomato. Um, for, that's for our larger um, like bush type tomatoes, yep. our, our um, big tomatoes. And then our cherry tomatoes, um, we can do those a little closer. We can do that same spacing, but we can do two rows in a bed um, and kind of offset the spacing on those. Um, but we tend to plant those a little bit closer. Um, so I want to say, I still want to stay on the tomatoes. So how do you stake your tomatoes? Do you do what do you use? Because some people are using nets, some people are using sticks, some people are using some of those cone shaped uh, um, uh, structures, mm-hmm. cages. So. What do you recommend? Yeah, so we actually do three different types, uh, depending on um, where they're planted and what type of tomato. Good. Um, so our larger slicing tomatoes, we do in cages. That, seem, that seems to work out best for them. Yep. Um, and we, we actually make our cages ourselves. So we just take um, basically uh, like net wire um, or like fencing wire. Um, and we just wrap it around and we want them really tall and really wide. So our cages are, you know, two feet, um, two feet wide. And most of them are about six to seven feet tall. So they'll just keep growing. Um, mm-hmm. uh, so that's how we do yeah, our, our larger slicing tomatoes um, and our cherry tomatoes. We actually Florida weave them, um, which is a method where you um, put stakes um uh, with our beds, we'll put um, a stake on each end and then one or two in the middle, depending on the bed length. Um, and then we'll weave um, baling twine uh, through each one um, on both sides to kind of create a little um, uh, pocket where mm-hmm. each one is. And then we'll do that all the way up. Um, so it kind of creates um, like a, a netting around it to hold the tomatoes in. Um, and then in our greenhouse, um, we drop um, wire down from the ceiling um, and we train them to grow up. Um, and we got really tall tomatoes that way. So, yeah, we, we actually use three different methods. <laughs> See, you can be so. a tomato <clears throat> trainer. Think about that. <laughs> right. A tomato trainer. But, but it's very true. It gets so uh, frustrating for so many people. It's just like, you know, I got that plant. It's going well. And then suddenly, like, something goes wrong. Mm-hmm. So the something goes wrong can also be please help us on that, where you have your flowers going and suddenly, bloop, mm. they just all go bye-bye and then you have no more, you have no yep. fruits or you have only a few fruits. What would be one of the reasons for that? Heat. Um, yeah, that's uh, that's a big problem here for um, tomato growers. Um, it gets really hot and tomato um, uh, flowers won't set fruit um, once it hits a certain temperature. So... The way that we approach that is we actually don't really prune our tomatoes. Um, I know in a lot of places in, in the United States, you have to prune your tomatoes or else you'll get blight and mildew. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's what your tomato plants will die from. 
Um, but because it's so dry here, we don't have a lot of moisture, we don't actually have those problems. So um, if you go on the internet, everything's going to say, you've got to prune your tomatoes, yeah, yeah. you got to keep them clean. <clears throat> And I was going to ask you about that. The opposite that... approach that we take. Oh, um, so that's interesting. We actually want to shade those flowers as much as possible. The more foliage they have, the cooler the plants will be on the inside. Um, and the cooler the plants are, the more fruit will set for you in the summertime. That's cool. Those are, and those are, those are the important, important effect. And then what about overwatering because a lot of people think that mm-hmm. you know oh my god it's getting so hard i'm going to put more water more water mm-hmm. and it's not really good uh, either because your fruit can crack right mm-hmm. and yep. what else can happen if you overwater your tomatoes they yeah. just don't like to that much water <laughs> um yeah we we always water um really really early in the morning and then in the evening for our tomatoes um, and they're on a drip, so we um, will just, they'll automatically go. Um, I know a lot of people will try to keep them cool and water them in the heat of the day, but they really like to be on a very consistent watering schedule. Um, so I think it's best to water them um, if you have a timer, that's best. They don't like to like not know what to expect. They can be really finicky with water. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, you you want to water them, but like they will definitely have problems if you give them too much. They don't like it. <laughs> and you mentioned drip. Yeah, it's yeah. best to water. Yeah, we have everything drip, on drip. Wanna... Yeah, in the summertime. Do you want to keep the water away from the leaves? I mean, is that bad for the tomato plants? Or um, I guess it... you you could have issues with um, you know the the mildews and blights if you if you had a very shady spot where they were in and they weren't fully drying, um, but. Yeah, we don't really have too much of a problem with that here just because it is so hot and dry. You know, if the leaves get wet, they dry really fast. So I think the drip irrigation in gardens, especially where we live here, is important. Uh, I think it's, there's twofold to it is to make sure that you have the, the right amount of water going to uh, whatever grows in the garden. But at the same time also, you make sure that you don't lose any of that water, which is really precious mm-hmm. around the around the, uh, ground county and where we are. Yeah, the drip so is much more water efficient. It goes straight to the plants and then... So, and make, yeah. make sure your soil is uh, worked where it drains well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right? Mm-hmm. So yep. you don't want your water pooling and, mm-hmm. and you want good drainage. So now everything is growing and suddenly our little friends, the bugs, say there's a party in the garden. How do you control? Because you guys are organic. Mm -hmm. So tell us a little bit about about how do you control this uh, this challenge that we all have? Bugs coming in and having a feast and then you have nothing left to eat. Yeah, so um, we use a bunch of different methods for for pest control. Um, One of the big ones um, is we use crop rotations. So if we have um, brassicas, which are like kales and broccolis um, and cabbages, they're really, really prone to aphids. Um, That's a huge pest here um, that we we definitely all struggle with. Um, But aphids will actually overwinter in your garden. so if you had a, a kale plant um, planted in one spot one year, um, those if you get aphids, they're going to lay eggs and overwinter in that same spot. And then if you plant that same crop again, they're going to wake up in the spring and they're going to attack Be your right plants back. again. Mm-hmm. So it's really mm-hmm. important um, to, to rotate all of your plants for a lot of different reasons. But one of the big ones is pests for sure. Um, so we try to um, wait three years between when we plant um, a brassica crop um, before we plant it again in that same spot. Um, another method is, um, just having really, really healthy soil and healthy plants. Um, plants will naturally repel pests if they are strong enough. Um, and, uh, the pests will always look for the weakest plant. So if you have a plant that's kind of struggling, it's not getting everything it needs with, um, nutrition in the soil, um, the, the pests are going to know and they're going to attack that plant. So having uh, really good soil health, really good plant health from the start really helps a lot. Um, and then inevitably you will get pests. Um, 
So we do a lot of hand picking um, because we don't use any pesticides. Um, we don't spray. Um, if we do spray, we use um, just a little bit of water with um, Dr. Bronner's um, biodegradable soap that is works really well for aphids. Um, great organic method. Um, but yeah, mostly it's it's hand picking. Um, uh, you know the the cabbage worms we have to go through and once a oh, week. Yeah look for them um we like to get kids involved when we can um they do love that <laughs> jesse might be able to talk more about the duct tape <laughs> yeah, yeah we've had a couple uh summer camp activities where um we do garden time with the kids every morning so uh, 45 minutes to an hour every day they get hands-on in the garden before starting any crafts and other activities so one popular one is to duct tape um around the kids' hands, so the sticky side is out, and they just look for bugs. They look for the oh. little eggs and just stick them with the duct tape and That's have so much fun cool. and getting into it. Yeah, and um, that way, while pests are obviously not ideal in the garden, um, it is a learning experience for kids, and they learn how to identify which are the bad bugs and which are the good bugs and which are pollinators and all different things um, to kind of get a better grasp on what organic gardening really looks like. So, the day Do you ever use uh, any type of predator insects to uh you know like ladybugs or um i'm not sure if we've done that recently at the garden i actually tried that once um in my home garden many years ago and i bought like five thousand ladybugs and then opened them up and released them and they all disappeared and i never saw them again maybe i didn't have enough pests for them to eat <laughs> i actually I, had a good experience uh, using yeah. ladybugs one time yeah. i had oh, nice. uh behind when i had the restaurant behind there we had a big um catalpha tree it would always get these little black aphids and i did i uh i bought the ladybug nests and that and put them on and it worked quite well actually and they came back for like a few years i think like three years i had plenty Mm -hmm. of ladybugs and no aphids so that's really good yeah yeah last year there was someone um who told me that they they bought a bunch of ladybugs for their garden and right after that i found a bunch of ladybugs in my gardens (laughs) it's like ah they found their way to the aphids (laughs) yeah they'll eat a I don't know if you know how many aphids a day, but like hundreds, right? Yeah, One ladybug yeah. will eat hundreds of ladybug or uh, aphids. So one year I had a challenge with uh, my tomato plants because there was those green caterpillars. You know, the you know they they they're about like an inch one yep. one day, then yeah. the three days later like three inch long. So for whatever reason, there was a few birds who came in. And um, just found one, I guess. And then after that, I had birds every morning going through all the tomato plant. So like at 5.30, 6 o'clock in the morning, and it would be like, uh, uh, there's birds are singing and going to town. But in the meantime, that was the best crop of tomatoes mm, I ever had. Wow. Because for whatever reason, the birds did the job. So, you know, you just never know. Yeah. I think Where, if you... Oh, sorry. No, go ahead, go ahead, go ahead. <laughs> I was going to say, if you, you know, create um, just a welcoming environment yep. for everything in your garden, you know, you want, um, you know, not to just repel the the bad bugs, but to attract the good bugs as well by planting right. lots you of flowers. You your own yeah. ecosystem. Yeah. Flowers, yeah. flowers. Yeah. Yeah. There's so, a great documentary mm-hmm. called yep. uh, The Biggest Little Farm. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't know. It's it's great. It takes place in California, and, and it was like a ten year process. These these uh, couple bought bought this farm, California, uh, quite a number of acres, and it it just in the documentary it shows what they went through the process of, and that was it because they kept getting different predators. Mm-hmm. You know, they had because they had uh, not only crops and that they had some animals and that, so uh, predators were becoming a problem, but it eventually uh like i said created its own ecosystem Mm -hmm. because they had predators for the predators and then finally it balanced out and the guy who like helped him out started the garden he says in eight years it'll be Mm -hmm. self-sufficient and it was like the eighth year in it it's like that was it yep yeah Yeah, for me i think that what what brought the birds is i put some bird feeder and suddenly, you know, this is where you had a lot of birds coming in and the, the tomatoes were already pretty, pretty high. And they just, you know, just go around and then f- 
as soon as they found one, they found two, and then everybody just went, whoa, right, there's a party at Bernard's house. Uh-huh. <laughs> Let's hit some bugs. And for me, it was really, it worked out really good. So it was great. great. I wanted to ask you uh, about herbs because herbs in cooking is so important. And I remember one year... I was going. I went through the to your garden, to the youth garden, and uh, there was you had a canopy, literally a canopy of beautiful uh, opal basil, the purple basil. Mm. It was so beautiful. So, how do you keep your herbs really healthy? Because I mean, you still have to deal mm-hmm. with the heat. Yep. You still have to deal with all of the insects and everything. But you guys had the most beautiful basil. Mm-hmm. So what what do you do? Is there maybe also some uh, location that 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 need to be because like this it really gets all the uh, the nutrient and the sun and everything. So mm-hmm. go ahead. Yeah. So we found um, in the past couple of years, um, if we can plant the basil in a, a slightly more shady area, it does much better. Um, and then also just like regularly um, cutting it back with basil, especially the more it's kind of counterintuitive, but the more you take, the more it gives you back. So um, we cut it at least once a week back um, and it just will keep putting out new new shoots. Mm-hmm. And um, so I think that, you know, there's a few herbs like that, too, where like they they want to be cut back um, to be able to produce more. But yeah, with the basil, um, Water and shade um, have been really helpful. Um, This year, we're actually going to experiment a little bit more with um, intercropping our basil with our tomatoes. um, Because since we don't prune our tomatoes, they're creating this nice little cool ecosystem. um, And we're going to try to plant more of the basil um, in between those plants and underneath. Um, We'll probably also still do a full row of it. But um, just try to see how that goes. Because I think it'll go really well. Because we're running out of... You know, there's only so many shady spots that we have in our garden, mm-hmm. but the the basil definitely likes a little bit more shade. Tell us about the other herbs. I mean, I love thyme, mm-hmm. rosemary, of course, but there's so many sage and so mm-hmm. many other herbs. So, what other herbs do you uh, do you grow, and what do you recommend for everyone at home? So, I always say that you should have mint because. <laughs> I make mojitos, so that's why I want mint. <laughs> you know, basil because I make pesto. So, mm-hmm. what are the other herbs that you uh, recommend to uh, to that you should grow at the house? Yeah, so a lot of herbs are actually um, perennials, so you only have to plant them once. Um, so that's what I would recommend. It's really easy. Right. Once once they get established, it's like done. Yeah, it's done. So. Yeah, you you plant them once, and then you have them forever. Um, and yeah, there's a lot of um, perennial. Herbs that do really well here. We get yeah, I uh, sage yeah, and rosemary sage do really and well rosemary, here. Yeah. Um, tarragon. Um, we've got a great um, oregano plant um, that's just been spreading every year. Uh, mint, mm-hmm. um, thyme. All of those are perennials. So you just plant them and then, then you have them. Um, so I would recommend those right. for sure. Some of them you have good. to worry about taking over, like mint can yeah, be mint real will aggressive. Take over. Mint will take over, yeah. Oregano will take yeah. over. Yeah. Um, yeah, so make sure you plant those somewhere where you don't care if it takes over the whole space. So like the corner of your garden um, or the side of your house is great. Mm-hmm. Um, just anywhere where you can just let it take over as much space um as it wants to and you don't have to worry about it encroaching on your tomatoes and your other um annual crops for sure and i think one thing people do in moab anyway is that they can uh plant too much i mean as far as especially zucchini or something like it's squashes <laughs> that like really take over the garden uh and because you know you plant oh it's a, it's a little couple zucchini seeds and then before you know it midsummer that it's taken over half the yard mm-hmm. so uh what do you, i guess i guess the best way to do that is once once they get established you pick the ones that uh pull the ones that uh you might need the space for mm-hmm. for something else uh but uh then you have uh you know these big crops of zucchini or whatever that uh you got to deal with mm-hmm. <laughs> usually people <laughs> will trade or just you know you'll wake up in the morning and you'll have someone left you a bunch of 
big ass zucchini on it. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and that's the other thing is is uh, crops like that that grow very fast. Zucchini grow like like oh, seems yeah. like overnight. It's overnight, like yeah. holy cow. Uh, and I because you know as we know as chefs you know the the baby vegetables like baby zucchini and that are are a lot better. Yeah. But it, it still depends so. what you do with it. I remember um, my grandmother uh, in Brittany, she would have, you know, those huge zucchini. And we would be like, we can eat that. This is like for the rabbits or for, for the pig <laughs> or something. She would say, no, 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 no. This is what we're going to do. She would cut it in half, remove all the seeds, fill it up with like sausage meat and all that stuff and bake it in the oven. Mm. I was like, oh, so it becomes like a, a vessel. And at the same time, you right. can eat a little bit of it because uh, it's still a, a lot of water. So it really is really good. There's one thing that I like to do with the, the young zucchini, about, let's say, seven, eight inch long. You cut it, in, cut it in half, then you score the inside like a little, like a diamond cut, I would say. Then a bit of salt, put it upside down for about maybe 30 minutes. And then you just roast it in a pan. Then you flip it and you put, um, you know, uh, I like to put some feta cheese, some herbs. Are you mm. going to the garden? A little bit of olive oil. You bake it in the oven. Oh, baby, it's good. <laughs> that sounds great. Yeah. yeah. And, and the vegan feta actually is, the, is even a better feta than the regular feta that you have because it's yeah, much more moisture to it. Yeah. So that's okay. really good. So yeah. let's, let's talk about that. You get the garden going, springtime, then it goes into summer, and your crops are coming on. Uh, I'm sure they're staggered mostly, but... Uh, so how do you guys, uh, what, what do you do with your crops? Uh, you sell, you preserve, let's, mm-hmm. how do you deal with your crops? Yeah, so we have a, a ton of different outlets um, right now for our crops. Um, one of the biggest ones actually is we have um, a small CSA program, which is uh, CSA stands for Community Supported Agriculture. Um, so this year we actually just filled all, all our spots up, um, but we've got uh, 28 um, shares. So people will choose either a weekly or a biweekly pickup. Mm-hmm. Um, so essentially they're, they're paying for a share at, at the beginning of the season, which helps us um, buy all of our seeds um, and get all the supplies we need to start those crops. Um, and then just every week they'll know that they have a pickup and they come and they get a big share of their vegetables. Um, so that's one of our biggest outlets right now. Um, we also, there's a ton of things we grow specifically for our youth programming. Um, like our, uh, we have these lunchbox peppers that the kids just love. So we know every year we got to grow two or three big rows of those. Um, and the kids will just like eat those right off the plant. (laughs) Um, so we do a lot for our, um, our youth programming, um, We've got like a Scoville scale lesson that we know we always have to grow a variety of hot peppers for to teach the kids yeah. about the Scoville scale. I was um, just going to say, you don't want to get the lunchbox peppers mixed up with the habanero yeah. peppers. Or... <laughs> They're both orange. <laughs> right. Yeah. One um, comes with a big bottle of water. Yeah, <laughs> yeah definitely. Um, we also donate. Um, the past couple of years, we've been donating uh, about 20 to 25% of everything we grow, which is a pretty, pretty big number wow. for a farm. Um, we have a, a, a care share program where we will um, basically donate um, uh, almost like a, a similar to a CSA box um, to MVMC and to Sea Caven um, every week. Um, so we'll take over donations of just whatever we have access of and then give them, you know, kind of mm-hmm. what uh, some of their clients are asking for specifically. Um and then we also do, you know, garden dinners, as you know. So we try to have lots of extra for that. Um, for our community programming, we do um, uh, weed and feeds where folks will come out and weed for um, about an hour and a half in the garden. And then we'll have a big free meal um, that everyone can join in on. So. Now, can someone, <laughs> can, can someone in the summertime, for example, when you have or summer and, and fall, um, go to the farm and purchase directly from you guys? Yeah, we have some folks that just, you know, come out and say, hey, I want to do a big pesto day. What do you have available as far as pesto goes? So people come to us. Um, The past few years, we've been going to the market, um, which is every first and third Thursday, um, and bringing, 
whatever extra mm-hmm. vegetables we have to there. Um, we do sell to a couple of restaurants in town. Um, but yeah, kind of all different outlets. We have a little online shop that you can go to. Um, it's linked through our website. Um, but through through the growing season, if we have, you know, ton of extra cherry tomatoes. I feel like that's something that we always have available on that shop is uh, cherry tomatoes that you can just go on, purchase them online, and then just come to the garden to pick them up. So, that's cool. Yeah. So we talked about vegetable. We talked about fruits, uh, about uh, herbs, but fruits, fruits. So what kind of fruit trees do you have uh, on site? So in our orchard, we have um, peaches, apricots, nectarines, pears, plums, and apples. Question. So, pretty that, big variety. <laughs> okay, yeah, good question that most likely a lot of people will have pruning your fruit trees. When do mm-hmm. you do this usually? Uh, so, you would do that before they start really growing. So, um, fruit trees get pruned um, in uh, basically like February through uh, early March, is kind of the window. You want to get them before they start sprouting. Um, and growing again so so pruning doesn't mean that you're cutting everything so Mm -hmm. where do you cut so you have the shoot and where do you cut it is that one inch above or Uh, (laughs) I actually don't do much of the pruning so I don't know a ton about Mm. that Um, I did do it one one time but um, you kind of just want to keep keep the branches low and reachable and you don't want to overcrowd. That's Mm -hmm. the big thing is to be able to get really nice, large fruit. um, You need the tree to be focusing on a few really strong, big limbs. um, And then we'll even go through and, and uh, basically prune the fruits as well. So you don't want them to be too close together. Um, But yeah, we do, we do a a big pruning day um, in the, uh, kind of late winter, early spring, and yep. then we'll come through once the fruit comes on, mm-hmm. and then... Um, so this is where you're thinning. So if thinning you have, like, as well, if yeah. If you have mm-hmm. three, let's say you have three apples pretty much together, uh-huh. you want to have only one. one. So like the, yep. that one will be nice, mm-hmm. and, yep. nice and big, because otherwise the three of them have to, have to share nutrients. Yep. So the, I think that's for everybody at home who have fruit trees. They, they have to remember that thinning is really, really important. Mm-hmm. So like this, you can get really great uh, great. Yeah, fruits. not just for the size, yeah. but the, the flavor as well is yeah. really important. We didn't do a great job pruning a couple of years back, and we realized we had a ton of fruit. None of it was very big, and it wasn't very sweet because it. it, you know, all of the the water and the sugars in the tree they're having to spread themselves so thin between all those fruits, and you rather have less really high quality fruit than a ton of fruit that just is not as great. Just, <laughs> just like grapes, and yeah, vineyard, exactly, you know. exactly, yeah. Less fruit, mm-hmm. better. They get mm-hmm. the they get the nutrition needed and produce the best fruit so speaking of which do you do any other fruit vine fruit or grapes or uh, any berries or? we do have um uh two grape uh like tunnel sections in our garden um mostly just for the kids <laughs> the kids just love picking them when they're ready um we could do you know raisins with them but they're really more valuable to us just for those uh nice kid opportunities for them to like go through the tunnel and get to pick the the grapes um and we do some melons um in the summertime we do watermelons and cantaloupes um but they've we've been having a hard time with those because the deer like them as much as we do oh, man. The so deers. they just come and stomp them and eat them and <laughs> yeah it ends up so i guess up, you would you have know, deer have... problems in in that area oh, yeah. Yeah. right next yeah. to the creek and... Yeah. and when they know where it is they never forget yep yeah. and they just go back and, and they, they tell their friends <laughs> yeah no kidding so suddenly it's like you know he's like what's going on here so yeah. no i would say like uh raspberry bush or something like this you don't now because they will go at it yeah we did have one small raspberry bush in our sensory and snack garden um that unfortunately was wiped out by the flood um mm. but yeah that was one of the you know that bush had just started producing and it would only produce a handful of fruit but it was like the sweetest oh, berry they are the best they yeah. are the best yeah. yeah let's talk about that. what effect did the flood have on you it must have 
cause yeah. quite significant damage because yes. you were right there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so for the people familiar with our site, um, we are right along the bike path. So the side of the garden that is in between the bike path and the creek uh, was where the flood water all came through. So that included our sensor and snack garden, where Sarah was saying that that bush was, um, as well as um, some rows of beds right next to there, and then our nibble garden, which is our community harvesting space. So uh, that was kind of the one that Sarah and I um, have been really kind of dedicated to bringing back this year Mm -hmm. um, because that is such a valuable space for the community to be able to come in and just pick any produce that we have growing there and take it home for free. Mm -hmm. Uh, And it's a great gathering space. So uh, we are currently in the process of kind of revamping um, what that space will look like this year and adding in some new infrastructure that will hopefully prevent some of that from happening in the future, an edible fence along the back uh, row of it we're going to plant a lot more corn down by the creek so that that might have some power in stopping water but um just more preventative so it's, yeah it's introduced some interesting challenges sir yeah and, uh, yeah so absolutely. you're basically gonna have to start over with that area right i mean as far as the soil you're gonna have to like start back and yeah yeah uh, mm-hmm. so it's definitely a process um this winter has been a good time to think through some of those plans and come up with uh, what we want it to look like and it's honestly a great opportunity to kind of rethink the space and create some new uh areas for whether families are coming to eat lunch we want to add some picnic tables and have that zone and uh that project the nibble garden was actually originally a high school class that mm-hmm. um that was their full trimester in a science class to they came up with the idea to have a space in moab that anyone can come and harvest food from so um we want to get high schoolers involved again in that through national honor society and we have some student volunteers that are excited to kind of bring some ideas into that space as well so working with them again to make it that community effort and the kids involved um to bring that vision back to life in a new way um yeah so you have also a calendar of events for the year can you tell us a little bit about the um the highlights Absolutely. Yeah. So um, springtime, our plant sale is coming up um, April 22nd this year. Calendar it, people, <laughs> April 22nd. I yes. will be there. It's Earth I'm Day. I'm going to check it out. It's easy you to bet. remember. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, so that's one of our biggest fundraisers of the year and um, also a way that people in Moab can get all of their plant starts for their gardens for the yeah. season. So it's a really fun event um, to come out and ask questions about plants, what they want to grow. Uh, and all of that money raised goes directly to our youth and community programming um, throughout the rest of the year. So that's a big one. Um, We will be planning some garden dinners again this year. Um, So those will be coming up starting in June. Uh, June. Shall we do one in June? I think we should do one in June. Yeah. You and I. What do you think, Tim? (laughs) Yeah, we're going to do that. Yeah. So stay tuned. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, garden dinners are so fun. Um, They're really a way to connect people in Moab and visitors who are coming to town um, to the local food system. Mm -hmm. And uh, having that direct seed-to-table experience is really special. Um, So that's a big event. And then we have our Weed and Feeds, as we mentioned earlier, that are an ongoing volunteer event every other Wednesday. Um, Those are starting April 12th, so soon. Um, And that is a way for, um, yeah, people to come out and volunteer for hour, hour and a half, and then we'll share a meal together cooked by volunteer chefs. And this is another plug for volunteers. Um, We're currently looking for volunteer chefs for this season. So whether it's a group of friends, an organization, Mm -hmm. um, coworkers, any group can come out and cook with the produce that we're growing in the garden, um, a meal for everyone who is attending that event. Um, Last year, we had a really special one right after that flood where we saw um, over 80 volunteers come out to help with flood cleanup, and we all shared a meal together. That's cool. um, Yeah, it was a really, really special volunteer night. So um, that's a great way to meet people and get involved as well. Um, And then in the fall, we have our annual Harvest Festival, which is just so much fun and uh, kind of celebrating a great, bountiful season um, with good food grown in the garden again, live music. Um, and just kind of a celebration of the season. And speaking of um, large produce, like those zucchinis, um, if you do have those uh, plants kind of taking over your space, you can keep them growing. We always have our Blue Ribbon Produce Exhibition in our Harvest Festival where we have different categories for um, like the largest squash or the weirdest, ah, nice. silliest vegetable. <laughs> okay, okay, wait. So, so wait, I want to know, what, what yeah. is what is that thing who really has been like a, oh my God, <laughs> what, what was it? We've gotten some big, <laughs> very big vegetables. vegetables. Yeah. So um, 
what kind of vegetables? It was really like the biggest one. We've gotten some zucchinis that were huge. Yeah. A pumpkin, I believe, two years yeah. ago, two or three years ago. Armenian cucumbers. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Also some really tiny ones, like the yeah. tiniest <laughs> tomato. It was like the size of my pinky so yeah. um, or my fingernail. It was the cutest thing. Yeah. 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 And last year we added a new category of um, veggie creature, which we're excited about. So whether um, you're a gardener or not, you can still get involved in this. So if you're not actually growing produce, um, you can get some from City Market or wherever and create a creature from that produce. So we had a lot of really creative oh, that's really for cool. that as well. Um, yeah, it's just a really fun way to engage in uh, produce in a, a new way. And if your planting doesn't go the way you want it to, you can still enter it into a category. And it's yep. worth it, so. <laughs> well, I have to say, you know, uh, the Youth Garden Project is is really a very important uh, part of our community, and and to see how much um, uh, energy and passion both of you have to really catapult this uh, project and and really keep it alive and keep it growing is really remarkable. It's really awesome. So thank you, thank you so very much for for joining us today. This was really a it was, yeah, a, it, was nice. it, it was a journey. It really <laughs> was a journey. And everyone in town should um, go and visit. I know that I have a little boy and when we can go and just, you know, take the stroller and go, it's, it's really awesome. And everybody is always welcome and it's so, so, so nice. So thank, thank you, you very much to yeah, you yeah. both. Yeah, thank, yeah, thank you for you so having yeah, us. It's really awesome. All right. So remember uh, the Youth Garden. Uh Go to their website. Yeah. Uh, again, that address is youthgardenproject.org. And uh, check out what's going on and get involved. Get involved. This is the most do. important thing. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. So, in a small community, and what makes a community is really being part of a community. So, be part of the community and go to the uh, Youth Garden Project and really enjoy, uh, enjoy the journey. Yeah. Bring the kids. That's what yeah. we have to say. Absolutely. Bring the kids. There's a chicken, there's a rabbit, there's everything growing. There's Sarah was putting mulch everywhere. So good. Awesome. Life is delicious. Yes. And so thanks again for joining the Buck and Bernie show. And uh, we'll see you again here on KZMU. You bet. All right. Have a great day, everybody. And enjoy spring. Chef's Adventures with Buck and Bernie airs on the first Monday of every month at 4 p.m., Head to kzmu.org for archives and recipes.